0: loose. Everybody ready to have fun? All right, so um, we are wrapping up a series today called The Old Way. I think we might have a graphic. If not, it's cool. There it is. Um, And so so basically, here's what we've been trying to do the last three weeks, and we'll put a bow on it today, and then we'll move back into Luke. We'll start in Luke chapter 18, if you want to start reading for next week. Um, But what we've been trying to do is explain basically the church. What is the church? Uh, Because raise your hand if this is your first time this year coming to the branch. Okay, so I know there's a lot of preconceived notions, there's different ideas, um, there's different stereotypes that you're walking into trying to understand what the church is. And so um, we stopped, we slowed down and said, we're gonna look um, on the biblical grounds, what is the church, what does it look like? Because uh, here's what we get accused of, of us being a church plant, um, of us being younger guys and gals leading this thing. Uh, We get accused often of like, oh, you millennials, you're just trying to kick it to the system and, and do church totally different just because. Um, and in some ways, like that is a, a merit that a lot of millennials we've earned in a lot of ways is um, we just do things different, not because we've thought through it, but we just want to be different. Um, but what I'm pleading with you guys and what we tried to argue over the last couple of weeks based on Acts chapter two and John chapter 14 is that's not the way that we've shaped this church, that we went back to the Bible and said, okay, if we could go all the way back to Acts two, when the church was really starting to become established, what do they do? What do they look like? How do they act? How do they behave? what, what formed the church, and so um, we came up with our three pillars based out of Acts 2, that we're gospel-centered, that we live in community, and we live on mission. And we spent, like I said, the last three weeks going through those. Um, all of those are online, available via podcast. Um, so I encourage you to go check those out if you want to get to know the church at a deeper level. Um, so we said, okay, if those are the three pillars we're working towards, then, then how do we get there? What are the steps to get there? What does it mean to be a disciple that is gospel-centered, that lives in community, that lives on mission? Um, and so we went to John 14 and, and saw that to John 14, Jesus is going through and says, this is what it looks like. First, you got to know that I am God. Second, you gotta believe it because there's a big jump between knowing and believing. And then if you actually believe, then you obey the commandments that I've given you. So what does it look like to be a gospel-centered community living on mission? What well, it means to know, believe, and obey that Jesus is king. So we spent a lot of time going through that, but, but this morning this is gonna look a whole lot different and I'll explain it this way. Now, raise your hand if you're single. I'm not trying to pick you out single, okay. Because we're kind of a college-heavy uh, college church, which I love, and you'll see why in a minute, I get a lot of dating advice. Uh, a lot of people are like, hey, man, how should I handle this situation? Uh, should I pursue? Should I not pursue? And here's the same answer I give every single time. I married my high school sweetheart. And we started dating before text messages and social media and all that came around. So I can't help you. I have no idea how to date in this culture, how they like, I just don't know. I had to call, like when we started dating, I had to pick up the phone and pray to God that her mom wouldn't pick up. That's the dating that I had to do. I didn't get this luxury of texting and all that jazz y'all do. And and guys, just look at me, stop texting. Go spend time with a girl. That's lame. That's a whole nother sermon for another day. If you wanna invest in a lady, invest in a lady. Don't hide behind a keyboard. That's all I'm saying. So. Uh, Amen. Anybody? Any girls? All right. Man, I'm, I'm going to scrap the whole sermon. Let's talk about dating for a while. But he, so here's the only dating advice I typically do give because I don't, the whole courting process is different. But here's what I do say. By the third or fourth date, you should have laid your cards on the table. You should tell what's your motivation, what's your interest. Um, you should talk about your past and some of the dark secrets and some of the sins that you're working through. By the third or fourth day, you owe each other that luxury of saying, okay, here, here's where I'm coming from. Uh, here's what I believe. Here's my stance on this and this. And you need to know if you want to pursue this relationship or continue this relationship, you need to know some things about me. And then, man, it's up to you. Like, I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table and I'm serious about pursuing you. If you're serious about pursuing me, then, then maybe this stuff wouldn't be an issue. This morning, that's what's about to take place. I'm gonna lay all of our cards on the table. The last three weeks, we've really looked at the theology of what the church is. And this morning I'm gonna lay out, here's who we are. Here's our distinctives as a church. And, and here's my hope, that if, if, you're, if the Lord is leading you guys here and um, you've sent something here is for you guys, that you'd stick around. Uh, but I know that there's going to be some things in here that you're going to have questions about, that you're going to uh, wonder, like, how does this really work out? So, so here's what we're going to do. Just, again, all cards on the table. Uh, this is a really strange, weird sermon kind of Sunday deal. So if this is your first time here, don't think that this is what every Sunday looks like. Typically, we open, and I'll explain this later, we open up scripture, we read through, it, we study about it. This is going to be that awkward date where the one spouse talks about themselves the entire time. That's what's about to happen. Uh, but here's what I want, as much discussion and dialogue as possible. Now I know we have a hundred and, I don't know, hundreds plus people in here. So here's probably the easiest way. McKinsey's going to put our number on the screen and it's our Google voice number. At any point during this sermon, if you have a question about what I've said, text me, and I will try to address it as we're working through. If I don't get time to stop and address it in the sermon, I'll try to text you back. Me or one of the residents or elders will try to get with you in the next week or two and kind of explain and work through some of these things. Uh, Because what we're working towards is our distinctives, what sets us apart uh, from maybe the church background or experience that you guys have come from. Um, And and I'll just be honest with you, there's some that I've left out, but the majority of the ones that I've included are here because uh, we've prayed through this, we've studied scripture through this and and we're not changing on these things. So I'm not trying to sound harsh or crude or anything, but, but I know that there's some of these things that might like, oh, I'm not a fan of that. Uh, listen, we want to help you get plugged into a church, especially if you're new in Dahlonega, you haven't found a church home yet. Our prayers, first and foremost, is you get plugged into a local church. If it's us, praise God for that. If it's not, we just wanna get you plugged in somewhere. So we figured if we could just be as honest and transparent in the beginning, then maybe this relationship would work. Sound good? All right, so Colossians 1 is where we're going to land to kind of set the pace for this morning. And I'll say it over and over and over and over and over again. This is not a normal Sunday here, but I feel like we need to go through this. Colossians 1. So again, as we're going through this, if you have any questions, text, we do have a prospective members class today at one o'clock, where a lot of these questions will be answered, so you can go grab lunch, come back, you'll be in the conference room over there, Um, or you can just find, if you're an elder, will you raise your hand real quick? So Rob's in the back, Greg, Matt's behind the TV, Jeremy is in children's, uh, and then I'm an elder as well, so we can answer these questions. Colossians 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Colossians 1, 15. He being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is in He is the preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making the peace by the blood of his cross. So let's pray. And Father, we just pray this morning that as we talk about what the church looks like tangibly, boots on the ground, Father, that you be glorified. That first and foremost we're here to worship you, to praise you, to glorify you, and because you're worth it. You are worthy that you're you're never going to fail us, you're never going to let us down, your love knows no limits for us. So Father, as we pray and and as we discuss what it looks like to be the church, I pray that that would be our root, that would be our foundation, is your love for us. That's your name we pray. Amen. Now Colossians 1 is a, just a fascinating uh, passage, the one we're in, because it, it's just explaining all that Jesus is. I mean, we read through this passage, um, our, our worship should just be growing because this is, this is who the, our God is. This is who we worship, that whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything in the end will bow down to him, that he's created all things. He is before all things. He is the end of all things. That is our king. But right there in the middle, verse 18, and he is head of the body of the church. He's head of the body, the church. And I love that the author just kind of works this in because we need to hear this. We need to understand this. And the word church is the ecclesia. It's used 114 times in the New Testament. And what they're trying to paint the picture is the church is never discussed as a building. If you uh, use the Greek word ekklesia, it means a group of called out ones. So we talk about the church. I mean, just as we're saying the word church, because if if we were all to close our eyes and say, what is, picture the church, most of us are gonna think of a steeple, stained glass, getting yelled at because you stole rolls on a Wednesday night dinner. Anyone else? Those are good rolls, right? I mean, that's that's what we think about when we picture church. But if we were close our eyes and say, okay, what is church biblically speaking? It's a group of called out ones. In Acts, there's these group of disciples that were coming and the townspeople are saying, the people that have turned this entire world upside down are now here. That's what it means to be the church, a group of called out ones that we are turning the world upside down like Jesus did. So when we first start talking about what does it look like for us, not theoretical, not theology, but the branch church boots on the ground, who are we? We are a group of called out ones. We are the church and we take this commandment very, very serious. And the way that this fleshes out is in a bunch of different ways. Um, But if you have your Bible, and again, we're gonna be flipping a ton. Matthew 16, I just wanna read this one verse for us to kind of paint the picture. Because we, as we study the church, we just have to play our cards. We are about the church. We think that the church is God's plan A to redeem the world. Then all the imagery that God paints for us it's the church that he establishes. It's the church that he commands to go and make disciples. It's his church, his bride, that he is the head of. So we believe that the church is God's plan A. Matthew sixteen eighteen, as he's talking to Peter, he says this, And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I just kind of have a pet peeve as as me being a preacher, I'll hear guys preach about this and they'll talk about the gates of hell should not prevail against Or They'll go over and say, what does it mean Peter's the rock? And they'll try to make all these cool explanations and Peter means rock and here's what this means and blah, blah, blah. But we miss out on the grandest part of this whole text. I will build my church. That the church growing is Jesus's responsibility. It's not man's that the church is his idea, that he has created this, that he is using this method. He could have used whatever he wanted to, but he chose the church to be the reconciliation, to be the redemption for the world around us. So when we start using the word church like that and explaining this, then then we start forgetting about stained glass and steeples and bricks and pews and red carpet and all those church fights and stuff like that. All that stuff permeates out the window because we start to understand that what? We are the church, that God has chosen us to be the reconciliation for the world, that we are the group of called out ones. We're meeting in a gym, are we still the church? We don't have much money to our name, are we still the church? We're pretty young, are we still the church? Yes, because if we are believers, if we're trusting in Christ, we are the called out ones. Now hear this often, And let me, again, if we haven't met each other, this is going to sound a little brash, but welcome to the branch. Here's what people want to say, and they're just kind of like, oh, I'm so smart and theologically sound, and I love Jesus, just not the church. Okay. Uh, Let me me tell you how ridiculous that sounds. Uh, My wife is sitting over there. Hey, Bree. If you came up to my face and said, man, I love you. I love the way you preach. I love your beard. Can I touch it? Like, you're just fantastic. You're such a cool guy. But your wife, mm-mm, I cannot stand that girl. You think we're gonna be friends? No, and if you kept dogging on my wife, I will lose my job breaking your jaw. <laughs> because that is my bride that I protect and love way more than you but we do the same thing with the church all the time. Well, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. Be careful there because the church is the bride of Christ and he's not gonna be mocked. He's going to take that serious. So if that's serious for him, it's gotta be serious for us that if we are passionate about the local church, it's because this is the bride of Christ and we cannot say I love Jesus but hate his church just as much as you can't say you love me but you hate my wife. That is not going to work out. Now, I, want, I just want everyone to look me deep in the eye sockets right now before we move on. I mean, I have big eyeballs. Look me in the eyeballs. Because what I'm about to say has gotten me in trouble in the past, and I do not want any drama to come out of what I'm about to say. Is everyone looking deep in my sockets? We believe the local church is first and foremost now, I know that as I'm going into this, we're on a college context and there's a lot of parachurch ministries. Let me take a step back and understand what a parachurch is. So pair means to come alongside, to come serve next to the church. So historically parachurches have existed where churches are weak. So one example would be the college campus. There are a lot of different parachurch ministries that exist because no church was on campus making disciples, going to win the college students. So parachurches have begun to exist because the church has historically been weak in that. You can look at the same way in missions. You can look at local affairs. That's where parachurches come in when the church isn't doing their job. So I believe because the local church is God's plan A, that everything should come out of the local church that if the churches were healthy and strong and we're making disciples that we're making disciples, we would not need parachurch ministries. But the church isn't doing that, therefore parachurches exist. So we are okay with parachurches. Don't hear me say that we hate parachurches that parachurches should burn. That's not what we're saying. But here's what we are saying. The church comes first. That if you're gonna get involved somewhere, again, here, anywhere, the church comes first, parachurches come second. That what you should commit to, what you should buy into is the local church. If you only have time for one or the other, plug into the local church first. Now, and I'm, as I'm saying this, listen, I'm friends with Nate Dickens at Wesley. I'm friends with Ken, Katie, and Keith at BCM. I'm good friends with Jeremy Moore over at CO. Uh, I, I know these guys that are on campus, and I've told all of them this. They all understand this, and they would believe in this, that the local church is first and foremost is primary. If you have time to serve in parachurch, by all means do it. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I'm saying your allegiance, your first and foremost should come to the local church. So if you hear parachurch ministries, here's just a couple of warnings that should be going off. If you are in a parachurch ministry and they say something to the effect of you're only in college for four years, you can be in church the rest of your life, so you should be plugged in here first before church, there should be some warning signs going off. I would love or one of the elders would love to know about that conversation. We'd love to address it. If you're in a parachurch ministry and you don't have time to get plugged into a local church because everything that parachurch does is just enough for you, where you're so busy, you have so much time committed to this, that you start believing, man, this parachurch is like a church. So I'm just going to commit here over a local church. I would argue with you that's that's getting a dangerous level from what the parachurch is. Parachurch comes alongside the local church. They don't replace the local church. So I know this is a dangerous grounds and I've said this before and then words gets out, well, the pastor said that parachurches are the devil and you shouldn't, I'm not saying that, please don't hear me. That's why I'm locked into my eye sockets. That's not what I'm saying. But the parachurch doesn't exist without the church. If a parachurch comes alongside the local church, well, the local church comes first. And when we study scripture and we examine God's plan that the local church is God's plan A, there is no plan B then the parachurch comes alongside the church. Your first allegiance should be the local church. Now, like I said, here, I would love that. But if not here, let us help you find a good healthy church within Dahlonega and get plugged in. But we are all for the local church. The next thing that I kind of want to address and discuss is our governance structure of how we lead the branch church. Um, Just raise your hand real quick. If you had or came from a church that had a singular lead pastor, There's just there's one guy that led the entire church. Okay. Uh, Raise your, if you all had a board of deacons. Okay. Raise your hand if the deacons fought constantly. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, that's just kind of a a stigma, especially if you're like Southern Baptist or from the South. There's just something about deacons and fighting that just always takes place. Um, So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Titus for me. We're going to understand a little bit about our governance structure now that we put all our hope in the local church. Titus chapter 1. And again, you've got questions, I'll try to stop and address as we're going. You can just text it to that number and we can go from there. I won't call your name out or anything like that, unless you want me to. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter one. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, elders in every town as I directed you. So here's, he's about to say, okay, uh, what's remaining, the church that is there needs order. It needs structure. So put elders, plural, into place in all of these churches in every town. Here's what an elder is, verse 6. If one is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer of God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So for us, when we read the New Testament, when we took the time to say, what is the governance structure? How do we organize this church? What we see clearly is Paul saying, listen, in all these towns, I'm establishing elders. Here's clear instructions for what an elder looks like. Here's what's not clear, paid or unpaid. Right? Like lay guys or or non lay guys, paid, not paid, college degree, seminary degree, doctorate degree. All this stuff is secondary. Here's the characteristics that Paul says is an elder. This is what must take place. And so when we came in, we said, okay, if if we're going to establish elders, to lead this church, then then what does an elder look like? And we waited a long time until we felt like we had enough qualified men to lead this church from an elder standpoint. So Rob in the back sells lights. Uh, Matthew Thomas sells furniture. Uh, Greg does uh, construction IT stuff. Jeremy is a school counselor. I am the only one that's actually full-time paid staff here. But the way that we govern the church, the way that we lead the church is I have one fifth of a vote just like these guys do. So if I want to take this church in a crazy rogue direction, they won't let me. These guys could fire me today. If, but the most important thing, I mean, those are some crazy examples. What they really do is they guard doctrine. They approve for the church. They watch out for the church. I mean, a lot of the illustrations we've seen is that we we're supposed to guard the flock. So imagine if you guys are sheep, right, that we're supposed to protect. What's well, better to watch 150 people, one set of eyes or five set of eyes? We have strategically placed our elders in different leadership positions spread across the church so that we are constantly watching from a spiritual level what's happening. All of our elders are dispersed among missional communities so that we can see what's taking place and watch what's happening. But, but we don't see this idea that there's this one guy that can lead this thing because here's, here's what I can promise you of all the things that you're going to hear. Please look at me and understand this I, Gabe Dodd, will fail you. Give me time. I will let you down, I will frustrate you, I will upset you, I will not return a text message, I will not return a call, I won't be there when you need me the most, I will fail you at some point. And I apologize for that, I'm not boasting in that, but we know that as we grow as a church that one guy can't do it all. And we start to see this Napoleon complex take place when he can. We see every year pastors that are getting disqualified for the ministry because as the church grows, so does their ego grow. And then so does the church fall and the pastor falls. So we see based on scripture and the practicality that takes place is, listen, we're going to set this up as an elder led church. Yeah, I might be the guy that flaps my jaw the most in front of you guys, but I have no more ownership or say so in the direction of the church than these guys do. So we meet together regularly, we do retreats regularly to get away and listen to the Lord and talk about the shape of the church and compare it back to scripture and where we're doing well, where are we getting stuck, what our sins are taking place. When we get together, we approve membership together. So if you want to become a member here, uh, you've got to write up a document and you've got to pass it off to the elders and we read this, pray over this, study over this before we approve your membership, that, that we are the ones leading the church. So what I don't want you to come into this idea of is Gabe's on stage, Gabe's one of the elders, so Gabe is the elder. That's not our model, that's not our model. So we are a plurality-driven church. And you'll see this, this this idea permeates all the way through our structures of the church. We have teams that are doing everything, not just individuals. So we are a plurality of leadership. We love the elder-led model. Um, So we did have one question come in really quick um, when you were saying parachurch or parent church, uh, parachurch, so the ministries that come alongside the churches, what I was saying, thanks for that question. Uh, the next thing we're going to hit, just flip over to Matthew 28 for me. I know this feels like a lecture. Again, this is not our normal drive for Sundays, but we figured we'd just have one awkward Sunday to get everything on the same plate and then we'll jump into Luke next week. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If you're a good Christian, you probably have this on a t-shirt somewhere. If you're a great Christian, you probably have this memorized. If you're a phenomenal Christian, you have this tattooed on your body somewhere. Does does anyone have the Great Commission tattooed? Just curious. No, that would be hilarious. You should. Matthew 28. We'll pick it up verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we've heard this. If you've grown up in church, have any background church, this is not a shocking thing for you to hear. Go make disciples. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? Go, therefore, and make disciples. But the practicality of this is where it starts to get strange and and where we just kind of want as a church to hang our hat on. Because the actual Greek, if you exegete this properly, this is what it means. As you're going through your daily life, be making disciples. So um, the way that we would kind of illustrate this as a church is, what does it look like to make disciples? It doesn't mean do anything different, but do the same things differently. That's what it looks like to, as you go, you don't have to do anything drastically different. As you're going to class, make disciples. As you're going to work, make disciples. As you go into your neighborhood or your dorm, make disciples. As you're eating lunch, make disciples. As you're eating dinner, as you're watching Georgia game, bring people over and do it together. As you are doing life, make disciples. But what we've done then is we've we've taken this and said, okay, discipleship is an event. So we need to throw events. We need to do these big special. Let's rent out this entire place and let's get a really good speaker to come in because our pastor's not good enough. And let's hold events. And this is what it means to make a disciple. I'm gonna get you to pray this prayer. We're gonna have this big thing going on, sign these communication cards, and then you're a disciple. And the events get bigger and bigger and bigger and more expensive and more expensive and more expensive. But, But what actually isn't taking place is you and me making disciples that we're funding these events that take place, but we're not actively going out and doing the work. The Ephesians 4 11, 12 would say that the leaders of the church, the elders of the church are here to equip you, the church, to do the works of the ministry. So we're here to equip you to make disciples. So what we'd call this is to live on mission or live missionally and we're no way against big events. I'm not saying that, don't hear me say that. But if that is our primary method then to make disciples, we're going across from what Matthew 28 has told us to do. That the idea of making disciples, that living on mission isn't some crazy strategy. It's where do you live? Make disciples. Where do you work? Make disciples. Where do you eat? Make disciples. And so we're fighting for this idea. This is why we structured missional communities the way that we are. That's why we are as simple as possible because we're all about saying if, if it's a natural thing, Discipleship doesn't have to be this big, massive event that let's spend all this time, energy, money, resources to get people here so they can hear a message so maybe they'll get saved. The greatest strategy for discipleship comes from Jesus going, hey man, let's hang out. Let's go take a walk. Let's do life together. Let me talk to you about some things. I mean, when you look at the interactions Jesus had, one of the most famous ones in the world, biblically, is the woman at the well. You all familiar with the story? Did that take place from an event? Anything crazy happened there. His disciples were hungry and thirsty and went to a well. Crazy. And then what took place? A revival. The entire town came out to meet this guy, Jesus. And you can do this over and over and over again as you're looking through the Gospels. That it's nothing crazy. It's nothing like rocket science. We just make disciples as we go. So we are going to be a church that's dependent upon you guys doing the work of the ministry, not doing it for you. We're not going to throw massive events so that you guys can just sit there and pat yourself on the back. Look what we did. No, we're going to do this together. And and you guys, let me maybe say it this way. Tell me the top three sermons you've ever heard. Just think about it. Top three sermons you've ever heard. All right, now tell me the top three people that have been influential into your life. Which one's easier? People. Now, if you've been coming to the branch for a while, I know my sermons are fantastic. So maybe you did say sermons. Sorry, I ruined that analogy for you. I love sarcasm. If you don't know that, I love sarcasm. I was doing a wedding yesterday and I made a really sarcastic jab and no one got it. And it, it was really awkward. It was that whole like, put your phones away because the bride's coming and we don't want your picture or your phone in the wedding. And I said, trust me, these photographers will take way better pictures than your iPhones ever could. And then jaws dropped. Sorry to hurt your feelings. Anyways, I digress. Big events they're great and they serve a purpose, but they should not replace the purpose of making disciples individually. Individually. All right. So we're just going to keep working through here then the natural repercussion. What happens if we make disciples? But let's just kind of tangibly understand this a little bit. If I say this year you're going to make three disciples. Okay. Then what takes place the next year when you make three disciples and you turn around and charge them to make three disciples. And the next year, when those three that make three, that make three, that make three, any math majors in here? All right, are you tracking with me? Because I've just confused myself with what number we're on. But it's a lot, right? So this idea of multiplication, if we're actively making disciples, then what is the end result that takes place? It's not addition, right? We're not just adding people into the church. We're talking about true gospel multiplication, That if I make a disciple that makes disciples that make disciples, we start to see multiplication happen quickly. So it's built up in our missional communities, it's built up in our DNAs, everything that we do. If you're a leader here at the branch, the first thing I will tell you is you must replace yourself within a year. That you must find someone, disciple them and replace yourself within a year. And so from this idea, when we had an elders retreat last January, we started talking about what would this really look like? If we took discipleship and multiplication serious, what would a tangible result be that we would start to plant churches that we have no desire Just please hear me. We have no desire to be a thousand member church in Nahlonega. I would even argue we have no desire to be a 300 member church in Nahlonega. If we ever get to that point, we're taking half of you guys and going somewhere else to plant another church. And I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, we have a church going on right now that started at 1030 in Milledgeville, where we discipled, we raised up, and we've multiplied ourselves. So we have this grand vision to have 10 churches in the next 10 years. So year one, we planted one. We're going to plant, Milledgeville's going to plant, then our church plant's going to plant, and we're going to plant again. Milledgeville's church plant's going to plant, and they're going to plant again. And multiplication is going to keep growing and keep growing growing that our primary measure of success for us as a church is how many leaders we multiply over two years. So we have a desire to make disciples, to multiply ourselves and to continue to grow that way. There's a quote that really kind of rocked our elders. I'll read it real quick. Um, The vision was to stop becoming a lake church and instead become a river church. In the lake church, people flow in and stay. It seeks to get more and more people around one pastor in one place. But in a river church, the people flow in and keep moving downstream. God takes them to other places to minister. The measurement becomes about flow rate instead of volumes contained, about gallons per minute instead of gallons retained. So we're all about raising you up, sending you out, raising you up, sending you out. Every structure that we have, and I'll talk about the simplicity of our church model, but every structure we have is built around Jesus and multiplication that if what we do cannot be multiplied, then it's a bad model. I heard a pastor, Vance Pittman say one time, anyone heard of Vance Pittman? You should, this dude's awesome. Um, Talked about church planting, he said, listen, if your church plant model would not work in Africa, you have a bad church plant model. If your church plant model would not work in Turkey, would not work in Russia, would not work in Canada, who would want to plant in Canada, but who would not work in Canada, you have a bad church plant model. So we talk about multiplication. We're not talking about the lights and the whistles and anything grand. We're talking about the simple idea of making disciples that make disciples that Jesus started. This is the whole entire reason that we're here because discipleship through multiplication, multiplication took place. So that's what we're gonna fight. If what we do, if our structure and model does not allow for multiplication, we will stop it quickly because we're all about multiplying. Now, uh, raise your hand. Another distinctive we have is college students. Raise your hand if you're a college student. Are you ashamed to be a college student? Raise your hand if you're not a college student. All right. So you can kind of see the the dynamics in the room here. So let me, I just got a text. Let me go take a step back. Someone asked, what is a disciple? And we would define this as someone who knows, believes, and obeys Jesus in every walk of life. So what we're trying to multiply is someone that knows, believes, and obeys Jesus in every walk of life. That's how we define a disciple. Good question. So what does it look like then to pursue college students? Because I'll be honest, the idea of planting a church in college town um, is not a very popular idea. Right? I mean, I remember very vividly, this is one of the few times I wanted to punch a pastor. Um, we were, actually that happens a lot, but my wife and I were sitting in an assessment together about church planning. And this guy, I mean, he was, he was an older dude. I'm sure he loved the Lord, but uh, man, he was wrong. He was, uh, we Brie and I were sitting against, uh, next to each other. He was across the table and he said, well, you know the difference between a, 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 a mission church and a real church, right? And I said, no. He said, well, a real church can sustain itself. If you're going to in a college church, you're never going to be a real church because it won't sustain itself. And that's when like, my wife like, starts rubbing my legs, starts whispering in my ear, like, honey, you're okay. Because like, I was pulling the Arthur, like my hands were ready to swing, right? So why then do we pursue college students? Why do we plant, so our 10 and 10 idea that we want to plant 10 churches in 10 years, our context for that is college communities within the Southeast. So we are purposely coming to college towns. Why? I mean, cause I'll be honest, college students, look at me, you're poor. I mean, you got mommy and daddy's money, but you're poor. College students, look at me, I love you. You're needy. You are needy. You like, what is time management? Like, I don't know what they taught you in high school, but you're needy. College students, look at me, because I love you. You're ignorant, you just don't know what you don't know. Welcome to the real world. But here's what I love, you're available. You guys have so much time to invest into people and I love that. You're passionate. I've never seen more on fire Christians than I have within a college student context. Right? So you're I mean, you're available, you're passionate. And here's what I love in four years, you'll go anywhere. So if I said right now in four years, our plan is to plant a church in Las Vegas, Nevada, you're going, man, four years, I'm going to graduate, Lord willing, I'll go. And we had a couple students transfer from here to go down to Milledgeville to plant because you guys can go to school anywhere. So here's this guy named Steve Luntz has written a ton about college students. Now here's, the, here's one idea. College students, did you know that if you're a college student in America, you're top 1% of the world? Just let that soak in for a second. Cause I know all you have to your name is a mini fridge and I understand that, but you were top 1% in the world. So where you go from here, the sky's the limit. You can go anywhere, but here's how he summed it up. Because who they are that you were top 1% of the world because when they are, other than the first five years of your life, college is the most formative years of your life. Any psychology majors in here? All right, if I'm wrong, tell me. Studies I've done, zero to five is the most formative years in your life. The second one is 18 to 24. 84% of college students fall away from their faith when they get to college. This is the most formative times in your years. And the last reason he concludes why we should plant college in college towns is where they are. They're learning and living. I mean, Dahlonega, whether you admit it or not, there's a culture of ideas in um, coming out of this town because it's a college town, that's what they do. Professors get paid to come up with ideas and solutions. And this is why we want to target college towns. That's why we want to target college students. Listen, I was 26 when we moved up here to plant a church. Kyle is 26, 27 when he moved to Millersville to plant a church. So don't tell me that you have to be 40 with a nice blazer and a good-looking suit and a three-piece suit and, like, bad hair to come over deal. Like, you don't have to do that to be a pastor. You can have a beard and good hair and not own a real suit. I mean, the the, uh, clearance rack at TJ Maxx is fine. That's the only suit I got. But college students, we're here for you. We're pursuing you. We're loving you. You're, you're the reason why we picked Delonica. I mean, I'm not trying to bore you with the details, but when we go all the way back, there's two ideas that Brie and I had when we wanted to plan a church. Uh, it had to be in a college context, and it could not be in the Southwest. That was it. She didn't like the Southwest. No real religious reason for that. <laughs> but the college idea was very crucial is very important for us that we planted a church in a college town. Now I knew this was going to take place. I'm going to fly through the rest of them. There's no way in the world I'm going to be able to hit all the distinctives that we have. But let me hit just a couple real quick. Um, I mentioned earlier that we're going to, next week we're going to jump back into the book of Luke. Over the last two years and this year we've been preaching through the book of Luke. This is what we call expository preaching. So we will p- pick a book of the Bible and teach all the way through it because we feel like that is the most biblical way for us to understand what God asking. It's going to make me preach you things to you guys that I would never choose to preach in, ever. I would stand up here, at one, uh, one famous author says that uh, expository or guys that don't preach expositories, that don't preach line by line, only preach therefore what they know. So if I'm writing a sermon based on only what I know, then you're, you're never going to grow any deeper than me. But if I'm having to work through a book of the Bible, I mean, uh, last semester I had to teach through divorce and remarriage because it was in Luke and we had to cover it. Uh, just cards on the table, I wouldn't have preached divorce and remarriage had I not stumbled upon it in Luke. There's gonna be things that we have to discuss, we have to talk through, we have to preach through as we're faithfully going through a book of the Bible. So we've gone through Galatians, it's taken us three years to go through the book of Luke. Um, next semester or next year we'll start, I say that, yeah, next year in August, we'll start an Old Testament book together. That, and I'm not saying we don't take pauses and breaks, But by and large, the theme that we're going through is expository preaching, teaching line by line, verse by verse, through different books of the Bible. I I'm going to go rapid fire here. Um, another thing, a huge uh, distinctive for us is we want to be multi-generational. I mean, here's what I mean. Most of you guys will come in and say, and I, and I get this question a lot. What kind of college ministry do you have? What kind of college, what, what things do you have for college students? And yet we will do certain gatherings for college students. But what we're fighting for is a multi-generational church. That we don't want to be a church with a cool college ministry. College students, you're adults. You're with us. We can learn as much from you as you can learn from us. So everything that we do, we're fighting for multi-generational. This gathering is full of old people and young people. Uh, All of our missional communities are full of older people and younger people. I know older people, you're getting offended because I said older people, but that's what you are. The young people are getting mad because I'm saying younger people, so get over it. Older people and younger people, right? Our DNAs are broken into older people and younger people. We want to be multi-generational. And if I could just explain it this way. College students. College students, if you're thinking about getting married, who are you going to ask? Your roommate that hasn't had a girlfriend in six years? I mean, I'm not sure. I I know it's funny, but I'm trying to be honest. If you're thinking about applying to a job, who are you going to ask? The dude that sleeps in through classes and doesn't even know what a resume is? And when you think about it, one of my friends has this quote, if you hang out with idiot friends, you're always going to be an idiot. So we add life, we will add value to your life. But likewise, as we get older, the more we don't understand culture and things. If we have kids, we're gonna say, man, I don't know why my kid's acting this way. That's when you can speak up and say, oh, I do because I'm still a recent child. I can understand why your kid is acting. I don't mean that derogatory, but you're a lot closer to being a child than a 50 year old was. So we can all speak into, and the moment we've made this a pillar distinctive for our church, that our church health went up astronomically. Because we all, I mean, we, our second uh, idea here is that your story matters, and we see this playing out together. That when the old and the new can get together, centered on the gospel, I think it's a really healthy, good thing. First Corinthians 12, would put it this way, that now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. So in this passage, Paul's going through and saying, listen, don't, don't talk down to the eye because you're the head and don't talk down to the leg because you're the arm. We need every part of the body we have. And college students, I'd argue, we need you just as much as you need us. Um, I'm going to skip over this one for now, covenant membership. Um, so you cannot come up to the front after this and say, hey, who wants to be a member? And you come join right now. I know you guys might have grown up seeing that. It's not the way we do membership. Uh, if you're interested in joining what it even means to be a member, come back at one o'clock and I can walk you through that. But but it's a process. It's going to take time because as elders we're here to shepherd and protect the flock. And if we're going to let you in as members, um, then we want to know you, know your character, and know that you're not a wolf in sheep's clothing. So um, we might have 150 people in here. We've got 20 members because we vet you guys. And through that, let me announce a couple of new members real quick. Greg Dodd, Dylan Richards, David Tomey, Matthew Kennard, Chloe Thomason, Madeline Harkins, Sidney Cardell, Sarah and Mike McCord, who have since moved, Jeremy Lavender, Macy Richards, and Daniel Tipton. Congratulations, guys. You made it. Um, so I know I'm skipping over that one, but we will discuss that in members class. Uh, there's Three more I'm gonna hit, is that okay? Y'all tracking? We awake, you can go get coffee if you want to. Actually don't, that's rude, don't stand up. Just kidding, you do what you want. Um, last, last three, the first one is pretty self-explanatory, I've hit it some, um, but we wanna be a church that's simple. That Jesus says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. So we say this often, that the work of a disciple is incredibly hard, but it's simple. It's simple, but it's not easy. So we're gonna set up structures of the church. We're gonna lead this church in a very simple mindset. We're not lying to you, the discipleship is easy, it's difficult, but the process of discipleship is simple. This one I get quite often. What does it look like to be a leader at the branch church? What does it look like to get onto leadership? So we have a simple principle, uh, it's called no first years allowed. So it doesn't matter if you're a, someone that's moved into town, it doesn't matter if you're a college freshman. we say your first year at the Branch Church, just plug in. Our DNA, our ethos as a church is a lot different than what most people have come to understand. Um, So if you wanna be a leader at the church for the first year, don't even sweat that. Just get plugged into all that we do be consistent Sunday gathering, go through membership class, go into an MC, go into a DNA, just learn how we do things. And after your first year, then we'll start talking about it and, and walking through the process of being on leadership. Uh, right now we have 10, if you're part of the pipeline, raise your hand. Cool. One person, really? Uh, they're, okay, they're all spread out. So we have 10 people in our church planning pipeline. If you're on MC leadership, raise your hand. So we have 12 or 18 MC leaders. I mean, we have leadership. If I would say, if you're in children's ministry, raise your hand, but they're all watching the kids. So um, can't do that one. But we have leadership available for you, but we don't want to, well, I'll just let the Bible speak for it. First Timothy 522. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part of the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So we just want to follow what Timothy says. We're not going to be hastily laying our hands on leaders. Stick around. And here's maybe the most telltale sign that if that's not okay with you, then you're probably leading for the wrong reason. That if you can't just come into a church and serve and love and be a part of without needing a title, I would ask you just to check your heart and see why that title is so important to you. Because like I said, we have elders just first everywhere. We're watching to see who's leading and serving just because, and those are the leaders that we're gonna go after. But I'll end with this. The two sacraments that we uh, as a church celebrate and will stick to for the life of the church is baptism and communion. Now, baptism, I'm going to skip over a little bit. We'll, again, cover it in members' class. Baptism, we would say, is for the believers. Baptismo means to actually immerse, right? So what does it look like to be baptized? First, you need to be a believer. And second, it looks like being immersed into water and bringing Brock back out. So um, have you all been to Yehula Creek Park yet? If you haven't, you should go, it's fantastic. That's where we do our baptisms, right in the river. Um, So if it gets cold, if you're brave enough, we'll do it. I think we did one in November, uh, which was pretty cold. But typically we do spring or fall before it gets too crazy. But but to be a member at the branch church, you have to go through believer's baptism. And so we can not talk more about that. But I want to land on the most of the time with communion. Because one of the things that you guys probably have noticed as you walked in is we do communion every single Sunday. Just curious, raise your hand if your church did communion every single Sunday. Okay, like four of you. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read through that together. 1 Corinthians 11. I don't have this phone number, but whoever sent me the meme of Arthur's fist, would you raise your hand? I love you. You're fantastic. <laughs> that is what he sent me. That's cracking me up. Can y'all see it? Because I alluded to, yeah, my fist about to punch a pastor. That's awesome. <laughs> First Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. And guys, this is how we're landing the plane. This, this will be it. I know you've stuck with me and we've moved really fast, but, but this is where we end. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink the cup, as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself so he, so here's why we chosen to do this Because we see that as as often as we do this, we're remembering what Christ has done for us. We're remembering the covenant that God sent his only son to die in our place and not only die, but be resurrected from the death so that we can be sons and daughters of God. That we had no way of earning our salvation apart from Christ coming down and taking our place on the cross. So we're doing this as often as we can to remember that because how often do we need to remember this? I don't know about you guys, but man, I am constantly made aware of my sin and shortcoming. So for me every week to come in here and knowing that I'm going to hear the gospel proclaimed and that I'm going to be able to walk over and literally break the blood, or, excuse me, break the body, which is his bread. Let me start that over. I can walk over there and I can pick up the bread, rip it, that symbolizes his body. I can dip it in the juice that symbolizes his, his blood. I can remember the faithfulness that God has shown me through the death on the cross. That, that means something to us but there's always some warnings that we try to give that we see right out of this. Um, but it is a time for us to remember, but it's also a time of us to receive, but it's also a time for us to examine. So we, we give out this warning that if you're not yet a believer, we'd ask you to obtain from taking communion and we get it straight out of this idea that you will drink judgment upon yourself then in a way, God will not be mocked. If if you don't believe this, then don't partake in this. And that's fine. We're so glad that you're here. If you're not yet a believer and you have questions and all that, that I'm, seriously, this is the best place for you. So we're not trying to guilt trip you. If you stay in your seat the entire time we take communion, please, I understand that. I respect that. Thank you for doing that. Because it's, it's not for an unexamined heart. But in the same way, if you are a believer, but you have not yet taken time to examine your own heart to make sure there's no sin within you, to make sure there's no sin among brothers and sisters, that you don't have anger in your heart, then you're also not examining your own heart and you may be drinking judgment upon yourself. So when we take communion together, we're saying, man, you, you've got to be a believer that examines your own heart because that's what the biblical mandate lays out for us. It also keeps whoever is preaching up here true to God's word. If I or anybody up here ever preaches a message contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot segue into communion. I literally cannot stand up here and preach a Pelagian theology that you can do this. If you tried hard enough, you can save yourself. Now let's go take communion because you can't save yourself. It makes no sense. So for communion for us is a time, and we always do it at the end of the sermon so that we can hear the gospel proclaimed over us. That we can check on our own hearts and then we can go take communion to remember and to celebrate all that God has done for us. So those are just a few distinctions for us as a church. And I, and I hope and pray that you guys stick around. I do. I feel like God is up to something really big. Now that we've got our second church plan up, we're starting to pray and fast about what the third one would look like I always joke but I'm not joking and I laugh because it is funny. The next church planer and church plant team is sitting in this room and you have no idea. Right now you're more concerned about the test you have tomorrow than where you're gonna be in three years and I'm telling you in three years you're gonna go plant a church for the branch. I'm telling you and you have no idea and I love it. But we only do all of this. We have distinctons, we have elders, we preach expository, we do all of that for one reason and one reason alone. Because Christ came, he died, and was resurrected for us. Without the power of Jesus Christ, we have nothing, and we are nothing. That we were just sinners trying to find our own way, trying to find satisfaction that would never come, trying to find a hole to fill our heart that would never fill it. But because of the promise of Jesus Christ, we have new life in him. Because of that, because he is the head of the church, we worship him and we praise him with everything that we have. It's the reason that the first thing that says behind us is that Jesus is everything. Apart from him, we have nothing. So are these distinctives who we are as a branch church? Yes, but may we never be known for these more than we're known for the fact that Jesus is everything. Let us lead with that every step of the way. So I'm gonna pray for us I would pray for you to examine your heart this morning as we take communion together and we'll continue on with worship. And Father, thank you so much for your love for us. You know, that you, even though we are sinful and arrogant and prideful and try to do things our own way time and time and time again, You never stopped loving us. You never stopped pursuing us. That your love for us knows no bounds. And that you didn't just say you loved us, but you modeled it for us. That you made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That Jesus walked this planet, lived a sinless life, And went to that cross under false accusations, pleading with you for ha- to happen any other way. But what he was doing on that cross was purchasing sons and daughters for you. That he willingly went to the cross, bled, and died, knowing what you were up to, God, knowing that that was the ultimate sacrifice. That because of the death of Jesus Christ, we can be made new creations. We can be made whole. But on the third day, he proved that he was God by defeating death. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father watching. So Father, we just pray that you would examine our hearts this morning. For some of us, we've been walking through some sin and struggles. We feel like we have no one to talk to, no one to confess or or work out some of our sins. We've just been hiding. And Father, we've been hiding from you. Father, would you convict us of that this morning? For some of us, we are so lonely. We don't feel like we can find deep, meaningful friendships anywhere. And we're starting to doubt your goodness and your grace. Father, would you come near, would you draw near to us? For some of us, we've just been playing the part of church kid for our entire life and we don't even really know you. Father, would you convict our hearts this morning? For some of us, we've been beating ourselves up for far too long because we're not perfect and we don't have it together. We're trying to do this thing on our own, white knuckle it. Father, would you woo us back to your heart that everything has been accomplished you were not lying on the cross when you said it is finished all of our past sins, all of our future sins they are finished, they've been paid for because of the atonement of you and your son so Father just between you and the audience in this room Father would you speak We're desperate to hear your voice. We're desperate to hear from you, to walk in obedience to your word. God, but we cannot do this on our own. So church, would you examine your heart? Who is God? What has he done for you? Because of that, who are you? And what is he asking you to do? It's on a moment. Worship's going to start. But you respond however you need to. If you need to sit and pray, sit and pray. Stand and worship, stand and worship. Communion will be open on both sides of the room. If, if your examined heart is ready to go partake, go partake. There'll be an elder at each table that can stand there and pray with you. Madison will be at a table. Macy will be at a table. If you'd rather talk to a female. But Father, we know that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That you are doing this thing. It's your name we pray, amen.